and miss things out and put extra things in and distort stuff and, and miss out windows and, and you, you know, be a little bit more subversive, I suppose, because I feel I can, I can get away with it. I want to try and get away with it. I want to try and push it as much as I can. Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. My guest today is Ian Fennelly, an artist and urban sketcher who paints his cityscapes with rich and sometimes bewildering and fantastical colour schemes. Ian just released a book called Layers of Looking. And as I spoke to him, as I looked at some of his drawing videos on YouTube, I began to understand what an apt title it is for all of his work. Ian's art is an exercise in looking and looking again, building with layers a vision of the world as he sees it, as he understands it, and as he creates it on his page. Ian was quick to point out that he is indeed an artist, which means he does not simply recreate a scene, but that he creates art out of the world that he sees. In this conversation, unlike some of my other episodes, I ask pointedly about his art process, because Ian's final work is so intriguing that it is absolutely imperative that we properly understand how he does what he does. We talk about how Ian went from painting part-time to full-time and the decisions that helped him to take the leap. We learn how he filters what he sees in his world and on what basis he considers some things important and others less relevant. We have an interesting discussion about drawing people, because Ian consciously does not include people in his drawings, while all my drawings revolve around human activity. Nevertheless, how does Ian maintain a sense of the human element in his art when he's not drawing the humans themselves? He had some good ideas about that. There are also some other interesting contrasts between Ian and my style of work, and I'm always curious about artists who do things a little differently from me. His sketches, for example, take a very long time, about three times as long as mine. Part of the reason is that I don't work with colours, but the long time investment has some other reasons and some other motivations as well. So we talk about what he finds from his extended observation of his environment, how he manages his focus and interest in the one scene, and the design choices that play into his work as a result of this. Let's get this conversation started now. To begin, Ian and I catch up about our COVID experiences. He's been sketching indoors a lot these last couple of years, and I'm curious to know how that experience contrasts with traveling and sketching outdoors. and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast, Ian. I'm so happy to speak with you and thank you for giving me your time all the way across in the UK. Nishan, you're so welcome and thank you for inviting me. It's, it's lovely. I would say it's lovely to be here, but we're not really together, are we? As you just said, we're, we're miles miles apart, but we feel we feel like we're together and it's and it's lovely to be able to join you in this podcast. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it, it's been funny that way. I've spoken to, uh, you might be perhaps the 22nd or 23rd person that I'm speaking to. And I think easily over half or maybe more than half of the people that I've spoken to, I haven't actually met in real life. So this podcast often becomes the first conversation we have. And 
to have a first conversation with someone about their whole life and about all their drawing and to have it go on for two hours and more is actually a kind of bizarre situation for me and I'm assuming also for them. So it's lovely to to connect and it's also very, very strange at the same time to be doing this. I think it's a, it's a great point you make there because I, th- I think the way the world has gone over the last 18 months, we're spending so much time now getting to know people virtually, aren't we? I mean, I've, I've got some fabulous friends that I've made over the last 18 months but I've never actually touched them. I've never occupied the same space as them. You know, I've no, I've no, no idea how tall they are because <laughs> I've, I've never really seen them. But I know them really well, and we've shared all sorts of stuff. You know, I've done all sorts of online classes and workshops and what have you, and got to know people really well. But I don't, um, I kind of don't know what they feel like. I've never touched them. <laughs> <laughs> that that's a that's a really you know it's it's a kind of point that gets lost like uh, you meant like what you just said about not touch them or not knowing how tall they are these are they're such human markers such basic markers of knowing a person but so much like in the upheaval that we're going through so much is getting upended and we don't know what's what now we'll know people for years perhaps without having these basic markers like you I haven't sat down at a cafe with somebody but I've spent two hours talking to them about my all my ideas about drawing it's Mm. such a strange situation to be in and we're just all thrust into it and we're all dealing with it in however ways we can trying to be upbeat about it trying to be optimistic yeah we've we've got to We, we, we yeah we've got to be haven't we I mean I mean it has been tough it's been frustrating I think but you know I'm always mindful that there's there's people out there who, you know, this this has been a really difficult time for them. And one of the things I've tried to do with my own work is is obviously my my real life workshops have, have, have had to stop because I can't tr- travel in the way I'd like to. But all the kind of online stuff that I'm doing, it's 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 a real privilege to be able to do it. And I'm in a very fortunate position that I can do it. So I'm just trying, you know, to, to make people feel as good about creativity as they possibly can and to support them as much as I can and to be able to do that is a is a really really cool thing you know it's good for me and it's good for them and it's good for everybody and the fact that we have this technology and you know me and you can talk now you know across across the oceans and, and connecting creativity is just a wonderful thing and, and we are so fortunate that we have this technology I, I often think Nishant what it must have been like if we'd had COVID 10 years ago you know it's bad enough now Absolutely. but 10 years ago without all of these technological facilities that we've got it it would it would have been so so much more I think challenging yeah and if you think about it 10 years ago doesn't mean so long ago but simply on the technological front we go back so many so many developments that this kind of connect would have been unthinkable we wouldn't have considered like even social media was quite naive and uh, maybe the first wave of social media was happening at that point all these mediums of connection didn't exist it would have been absolutely bizarre like for it to have happened now at this time the only consolation like you say is that technologically we were ready to make certain leaps yeah. and zoom has entered all of our lives yeah video yeah. conferencing has att- attained a normalcy in all of our lives and yeah we're quite quote unquote lucky in one sense to be in a pandemic in this time of the world it's it's the knowledge as well isn't it you know it's it's how our our tech technological knowledge has developed in the last 18 months the things i can do now 
that I, I had no idea how to do two years ago. And, and, you know, a lot of the language that we're using now, you know, I just, it just didn't, it, it didn't exist. I mean, most of my time was spent, you know, talking about colors and, and paintbrushes and, and tones and values and perspective and all this kind of thing. And, and, and now, you know, the language that we're using is, is just, you know, unmute, for example, you know, unmute. It's like you're unmuted. <laughs> I still, I still get some people all the time. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, I, I actually wonder what, so things in Canada are kind of on the, on the up now. So things are getting better up again implies almost we think numbers are the numbers up. That's not, but things are looking up and numbers are going down and things are sort of kind of returning to normal with good vaccination rates. And it's even, this is almost a bizarre feeling like the idea that we can now go out and connect with people in a normal way feels unreal and I feel almost unprepared for it even though I've longed for this kind of moment it feels odd to be doing this because again the consequence of this time the fact that we're able to do this and we're able to connect with people is also that we're able to connect with how unequal the world is and how many people are still locked in cycles of lockdown or restrictions or vaccines or lack of vaccines so I don't like it's it's even more difficult now to disconnect when needed and to move on with your life because so much of it is connected to these different things and different people in very very different parts of the world. Mm. That's that yeah. I mean I, that that's one of the things that I think is is very apparent in in terms of travel as well isn't it that you know in our particular country you know, the vaccine program has has been absolutely amazing and we have a huge percentage 85% or even higher of the population have had their vaccine and like 70% have had a double vaccine. But obviously we still can't travel because other countries are not, you know, in the same, in the same situation. And some of my friends, some of my really good friends live out in Australia and they've got a complete clampdown because they're having to deal with the virus in a completely different way because of things like the, the indigenous population. And, you know, they've got to make sure they've got to do it right. And they trying to go for, you know, a zero, zero COVID and, our governments, you know, have a slightly different approach. Um, on Monday, a lot of things are opening up and you won't need to necessarily social distance anymore. And it's almost like a return to normality, which a lot of people are very anxious and worried about um, be, be, because, you know, the, the, the rates of infection are still really high, but obviously not that many people are suffering hugely like like last, last winter because the vaccine programme and also because, you know, the hospitals are able to deal with it so much better. So we are connected in so many ways, you know, people's actions, people's um, behavior affects all of us, um, in, in, you know, in so many, in so many ways, we are very much roped into all of this together, but I'm convinced we'll pull through it. And I'm hoping that when we do come through, we'll all really appreciate things in a way in which perhaps, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't do before. I mean, I, I remember it was two, two years ago, all the urban sketching community, community were, were in um, Amsterdam for the 2019 symposium and it was great and I was there the year before and we were all looking forward to the following year which was going to be in Hong Kong but you look back on that now and you think my god my goodness that was a, a golden moment a different world <laughs> to be cherished you know to go back and meet all of those people now again on location would just be fantastic and I would try and hug so many more of them and try and spend so much more time talking and watching other people draw and paint than, than, than I did. Um, so, you know, we, I think we took that, that kind of pre COVID world for granted and hopefully 
you know, a year down the line or however long it's going to be when we come out of this, we'll, we'll appreciate things a lot, a lot more. I, I mean, I know, I know I certainly will. I, I certainly will. I absolutely agree. Like, I, like so many, uh, so many things that I used to complain about, I would not complain about anymore. At least I hope that I would not complain about it anymore. But uh, while you were saying this, I was also thinking about how quickly we adjust to what we often like call the new normal. But the new normal is almost every day. Every day we are adjusting to a new reality in another little way, and it's almost like everything old doesn't exist anymore. So. Uh, like I sometimes think back two years ago and it feels like it was ages ago. Like I can't imagine that I simply sat around people or that I was simply sitting at an airport and I was happy to have strangers around me. So uh, let me tell you about two different experiences I've had. So I've always loved to draw uh, at airports because I love to draw different kinds of people. And an airport is the perfect place where completely unrelated, diverse people will come together to get on a flight and sit in front of you for an hour doing nothing, just waiting for their turn. And I would welcome that situation. It was such a positive thing for me that this is where I'm exposed to so many people. And now uh, the, the time that I flew from uh, the US to Vancouver, I was at an airport and I was flying through Seattle. So we stopped at Seattle and we boarded again. And this same fact that I'm exposed to lots of different people was terrifying. <laughs> I was just thinking about how I don't want them to be near me. And if somebody walked a little bit too close to me, I looked at them with, you know, a bit of frustration or anger in my face, like through my mask, that why are you so close to me? And it's such a flip around of how I would feel. It's such a good thing to have people close to each other, to have people to be able to, even if you're not talking to somebody, to know that they're on the same flight as you is a connection that you share with them. But now that positive connection became a negative thing. And it was such a bizarre reality to contend with that these positive things are bad things now. And I'm not supposed, and hopefully in the future, again, I get to regard them positively. But flipping between these switches is, it does something to the brain. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are, there are so many conventions now in place, aren't there, which we've just accepted. And I think this unlocking process, which is starting to happen across a lot of countries now, is quite worrying and frightening for, for, for many, many people. Um, I was meant to be flying out to America on Friday um, to go to, to teach in, in Wisconsin. And of course, that's that's just been cancelled. But I was a little bit nervous about going. So I was massively disappointed when I found out it was cancelled. But I kind of one tiny little part of me thought, well, maybe we're just not ready for that yet. You know, maybe I'm just not ready to be queuing up at the airport and getting on a plane and, and you know, getting through the other side and, you know, doing, you know, change, swapping over, getting different, getting a different plane. And, but once I was there, it would have been fine. It would have been great because all the workshops would have been outside. But it's more that kind of traveling, you know, traveling through the airport. And that was the thing that I wasn't kind of looking forward to. Um, but at the same time, I was hugely d disappointed when it, when it didn't happen. So, and that, but it's, that's been going on for 18 months. I mean, since this thing started in, in March, 2020, I think I've had to cancel about 12 trips abroad at least. Wow. So, and it's, I think it's going to carry on. Yeah. On that subject, like since you're such an avid traveler and you're a consciously outdoor sketcher, how has it been for you to deal with this, this period of the last 18 months? Well, I mean, it's going to be, yeah, 18 months, I guess. How has it been for you to deal with it? Uh, are you getting more studio time and how have you oriented yourself as an artist to, you know, to 
to pivot basically to this new normal i think i'm i've, I've been really lucky i think because i i work with a lot of people i work with a lot of companies i've got a lot of good people around me that support me so i've just been able to almost seamlessly transit from working outside and, and doing in, in person workshops to, to, to doing virtual workshops um, and recordings as well and I've done a huge amount for many many different companies and it's it's been it's been quite easy in that sense in a business sense for me to do it it's not been the same experience obviously because I'm not meeting people I'm not with people I'm not connecting with people in quite the same way everything's being done through a screen so I suppose in answer to your question that the business side of it the the, the um the creative side has, has carried on. It's just not been as much fun. It hasn't been the same kind of enjoyment, really. I mean, I've done so many virtual workshops for diff different companies that I'm involved with. And we, we've, we've been out and travelled around the UK a lot and done lots of recordings on location. So I, I, I go to London or I go to, to Cornwall or I go to Wales with a film crew and I'm on location drawing and painting. And I'm, it's all being recorded and then we package them together as a, as a workshop. But I'm not with people. I'm just with the, the recording crew. So I'm not interacting with anyone. I'm not teaching anybody. I'm not getting any kind of feedback in that sense. Right. Um, so so it's, been, it's just been a completely different way of, of, of working in, in, in some ways. I mean, even though the work I do is still the same, I'm still using the same process. And, the, you know, if you look at my work, on, on Instagram, for example, kind of pre-COVID and post-COVID, there's no change, there's no transition, there's no jump. It all looks exactly the same. It's still me just messing around. But the actual experience of doing it is massively, massively different because I'm just not, I'm not meeting people. I'm not meeting the people that I'm, I'm, I'm used to meeting and I'm, I'm, I'm really missing them. You know, most of my friends live all around the world and I, I can't see them and I'm missing them hugely. And it's not the same talking to them on a screen. No, it's not. No, uh, and in fact, so much of this, uh, this, this work of meeting people and being on location, it's almost like a fuel to sketchers like uh, you and I who like to sketch outdoors. The enthusiasm is wrapped up into it. The drive is wrapped wrapped up into it. And so, is is there a, a difficulty in motivation also some days because you're working at the same spot and you're you're painting and you're drawing scenes from all over the world through images but the fact that you're in the same spot and that the, everyone you speak to is on that same screen is 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 it tough has like has there been an up and down in your your sense of personal motivation that's a great question i, d I don't think there's ever been a, a down there's, it's only ever for me there's only ever really an up because i just i love what i do so much i have so much fun doing it it's not probably as much fun um be because as you just alluded to then you know one of the things about urban sketching is it's a great social event and you know we're all outside on location experiencing the same space you know looking for the same stories you know challenging ourselves working you know working alongside each other really and 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 that is is such a kind of inspiring and positive thing now to suddenly not do that and to work from a screen in your studio in the same space is is massively different and it's not as much fun but it's still it's still fun i mean i don't, I don't ever go into the studio feeling really miserable and think i thinking i don't want to do it today because well, for one, for one reason, I don't do a huge amount of work in the studio anyway. I mean, I, I'm only maybe in the studio three days a week. The rest of the time, I'm off doing other stuff. So I, I'm not one of these artists that works every single day because I just don't feel I need to. 
But when I when I do go into the studio, I really enjoy it, and and I'm quite disciplined. I'm quite ordered. I know what I need to do, especially if I'm filming by myself. You know, if I'm filming filming by myself, I have a schedule. I have it all mapped out. What I'm going to be doing. I've got all the cameras set up and all the lights, and you know, it's all kind of sequenced in a certain kind of way. And then if I'm outside filming with a camera crew, again, it's a very kind of disciplined activity. So we kind of know what we're doing. We know what we need to get done. But within all of that, I'm just I'm just messing around and having fun and just you know and, and enjoying it because I, I feel that one of the the ways I can teach best is is by showing people look this is just brilliant this is just such fun to do this is amazing and if I think it's amazing and I enjoy it to bits and then hopefully it inspires other people so you know this it never it never even enters my mind to, to go into the studio and think oh I really don't want to do it today because it's just you know, I can think of so many other far worse jobs that people would have at the moment that I am just so lucky to go into the studio and make art and draw and use colour and use my emotions and do whatever I want, knowing that it's going to have a positive outcome. And that that is just a real fortunate position to be in. And, you know, I'm, I'm very mindful of that. You know, I've done other jobs in the past where... I perhaps not enjoyed it quite as much. So to be in this position now when I can just go and have fun and play. I mean, my studio is just like my playroom. You know, it's full of my my toys. I just go in there and I, I play around and mess about. And, you know, hopefully a picture comes out and they always seem to. <laughs> Sometimes they don't, but m- mostly they do. <laughs> That that's a really nice uh, like it's it's nice to be grateful for the, that kind having that kind of autonomy in life the, that even if your terms are restricted, you're still doing essentially what you want to do with your time. And that's, it's it's good to keep that in mind. And it's good to center that, especially in these times when there's so much up and down, and we don't know what happens in the like you just mentioned cancelled plans. And it feels like it's getting tougher and tougher to plan two or three months ahead of time. It's very difficult yeah. to know how yeah, things will change and when they will change a certain way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, in the last, this, since March of this year, I've had to, to cancel, I think, five, five trips abroad to, to, you know, to teach. And I've just had to cancel another one this week. And then there's another one that's coming up, which I don't think is going to happen. So my next trip is September. I've got three trips away in September. Now I'm hoping, I'm just really hoping that those, two of those countries will be fine at the moment, but you just don't want anything to go into reverse. Another one of those countries is America, which, as I said before, they won't let me in at the moment. But I'm hoping that I won't have to quarantine when I get there, because this is the big issue, you see. I'm okay going to a lot of these places and coming back is fine, but it's it's getting in there. You know, when I get in there, if I've got to quarantine for 10 days, when I should be spending seven of those days teaching workshops, it's a bit tricky, really. So what I'm thinking is maybe I'll just invite all the students around to my hotel which is probably going to be some pretty grim hotel just outside the airport, which isn't going to be the most inspiring thing for urban sketching workshops, but it's like the only thing I can do. They'll have to come and visit right. me in quarantine. <laughs> That's the only way we can do it. So no, so it's frustrating because I can't, just can't get to these places at all. I, I think there's a possible uh, solution here where you could be in your hotel room and they could uh, be standing below in the parking lot. Yeah. And you could... It, it could be a, a sermon from the hotel in yeah. one sense. Yeah, we, we, we could we could do that. I mean, yesterday I got loads of messages from students who are coming on this particular workshop saying how 
how disappointed they were and, and the, you know, they're hoping they can, they can kind of rebook it again. And that was lovely. You know, and it just makes you kind of appreciate how much people enjoy these events. You know, that they, 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 it's not just about me teaching. It's about them coming together as a group as well. And we're all in this together because one of the things I say to people is, look, I'm, you know, I'm one step ahead of you because I've designed the workshop. I know the process that we're going to go through. I know the stories that we're going to be telling. But ultimately, you know, you're in this with me and we're all working alongside each other and they enjoy it, not just because of the workshop, but because of the experience and because they're meeting fellow students. And, you know, um, and they all become really good friends. And I, I've done workshops in the past where we've we've started these WhatsApp groups, you know, to kind of keep to touch base so we can make arrangements on a kind of daily basis. And all the WhatsApp groups are still going. And, and this is like a year later and they're all still communicating with each other. And that's kind of not nothing to do with me. That's just something that's kind of happens almost by by um, by accident, really. But it's still it, it takes on a life of its own, and and that's just wonderful. It's wonderful when that 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 takes place. It's it's yeah, it's great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now let's let's go back to this subject of uh, the things that motivate us to make art, the things that inspire us to to do this kind of work, and. There's a lot of reasons why making art in these times is a great relief, but there's also a lot of ways in which like a lot of people would find it difficult to motivate themselves to do this, considering all the things that are happening in our world to then focus on the activity of making art. So I want to go back in time. I want to talk about how you became an artist in one sense, uh, because I'm, I'm interested in this question because different people become different kinds of artists for all sorts of reasons. And it appears to me that only some of those reasons are quite coordinated and planned. And a lot of those reasons are just happenstance or something that happens to them in one phase of their life that turns them a certain way. Mm. So uh, is is this something that you can tell me about? What were some of the first things that okay. you remember being excited to draw? And what turned you towards this decision to get an education in art, whether it was whether it was art you saw somewhere, whether it was media you mm. saw in some other format or, or some kind of role model in your life. Okay, I think if I take it if I take it right back when I was at school, it was the thing that I was I was good at. I was always good at drawing when I was when I was younger. And when you get when you're getting a lot of praise from your peers or your teachers, you know, it just motivates you. So I was kind of always the best at drawing in my class and then the best in the school and all this kind of thing. So it's that kind of similar story that I guess a lot of artists that you speak to, they were good at it from a perhaps an early age. Not everybody, but a lot of us found, you know, we were good at drawing from an early age. And that kind of motivates you because you enjoy the praise. I mean, all children enjoy, you know, encouragement and, and praise. Um, and it, it never really stopped for me. So, I mean, this, you know, I'm talking about when I was six, seven, eight, nine, when I was at, you know, primary school. But then it never really stopped. And, and so I went to secondary school and I did an A-level and did really well at A-level and went on and did a degree and all this. But while, while I was doing my um, foundation course, which was in between my A-levels and starting university to do my arts degree, you do a foundation course in the UK. So I was kind of 18 when I did that. And we did this project on, on the docks down at Liverpool. And it was a real eye-opener for me because I'd never really drawn on location until we went down there and we had to take sketchbooks with us because normally up until then I'd work from my imagination or like a lot of people we work from photos but actually going outside and drawing was a real revelation because it made me realize from an early age that you see so much more 
And it also kind of made me realize from a very early age, because I was only 18 at the time, that you don't have to draw everything you see as well, you know, which it's kind of like from a photograph, you don't really get that. You know, you think you've got to copy the photograph and if you don't put everything in, you're getting it wrong. But drawing outside wasn't wasn't about that. So anyway, I just became really interested in cityscapes from that point onwards. So then I went down to London. I did a fine arts degree in, in London for three years at a really good art college called Wimbledon, Wimbledon School of Art, which is part of London University. And I I just kind of almost took that that passion for cityscapes down to London and started doing loads of cityscapes and you know painting the kind of space and the environment that, that I was that I was in. And the motivation behind it, and this is getting, I suppose it's kind of getting a little bit deep now, but the motivation was I've always been really interested in maps and cartography and, and visiting places. And I love maps and, and painting was a way of me orientating myself around that space. So if I did a painting, say, of Trafalgar Square in London, it was really important for me to kind of come to terms with that place and know what was around the corner and know what happened up across that road and why were the shops there and what was the statue about. So it, it, it just helped me to kind of understand the place that I was in. And this was, this is when I was a student. This is when I was like 19, 20. And I'm still doing it now. It, it, it's still the same motivation. So I go to, I go to Texas. I'm hoping to go to Texas in November. Now, I've never been to Texas before. I'm really excited. I'm going to go to San Antonio. My motivation, apart from teaching the students, you know, and, and having a whale of a time, apart from all of that and, and the stakes and the cowboy boots and all that and the dancing and all the set, apart from all of that, my motivation is to kind of work out what's going on. You know, where does that, where does that road lead to? What, what, what's behind that, that building there? You know, it's, 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 that's the same motivation but for me to work out what's going on, what, what's it all about. And drawing on location really forces you to, to do that in a way that nothing else does. You know, working for your imagination is much more personal and subjective and working from a photograph is very limiting because you're limited by the amount of information. But when you're actually in that actual space itself and you exist in the same three-dimensional space that you're recording, you can just explore and investigate the whole world you've got the whole world in front of you and i teach this to the students as well you know i encourage the students to walk into the scene and touch the wall and, and okay not now maybe because you've got to sanitize your hands and things <laughs> like that but <laughs> i used to <laughs> sorry i can't well, remember what your question was because i've just gone off completely on that one <laughs> don't worry i'll come back to it <laughs> but uh, i like what you said about uh you know i like what you said about uh, th those questions that are in your mind, you know, like, so I'm, I'm also fascinated by maps and cartography. And in a sense, the drawing I do is sort of like bringing that map to life, bringing that little street corner on the map and exploding it into a larger view. So I'm thinking about these questions that you that you said, and how they must run through your mind. And those are answered in the process of little things like deciding where you want to sit mm. or what kind of view is yeah. working and yeah. and i guess it's that kind of interaction with the three with the three dimensional space like you mentioned really being there and that 
the moments before you actually sit down to draw when you circle around your subject a little bit mm. and you choose whether you want to sit whether you want to be under a tree whether it's mm. better to stand maybe and uh, uh, like these these questions are then getting answered can i see around the corner or can i create a story of something about that corner that is emerging from the side of this bar or this building and that interaction with the 3d space is perhaps lacking when we work from a photograph because a photograph has already defined our limits mm. for us yeah, right definitely yeah when i was um when i was in america a couple of years ago we were doing a workshop and um i i was fascinated by the fire hydrants because we don't get fire hydrants in the uk you just don't have them and they're so cute as well and they're all different and really funky and i was fascinated so i just wanted to stick them in all my drawings even if they weren't in the scene because I'd just scan the road and I'd see one 50 yards up the road and I'd just bring it down and I put it in this space and it just worked as a compositional device really well on the left-hand edge of the court of, of the of the scene and and that's something you can do so brilliantly on location because you're and it's a very personal thing you know it's, it's, it's what you think is interesting it's it's what you know grabs your attention it what it's what captivates you and and, and you have the facility to do that when you're outside because ultimately it's all about telling a story isn't it it's telling it's telling your it's telling your story um and the, the story is the things that you you think are, are significant and, and, and interesting and how you want to construct it all together um yeah yeah this idea of a story and being able to construct it it's it's almost uh, like there's this feeling of empowerment that comes from actually being on location you feel empowered to take these creative decisions to be a little liberal with uh, what you could call the truth of the scene mm. of where that lamp or that uh, that uh, fire uh, the uh, lamp post for example actually is or where the little red structures actually are and to to be able to play with that is so much part of the fun and of the being in that place yeah yeah I, th i think i think this is a great a great subject it's, it's probably the thing that i'm most fascinated by which is this relationship between when you're drawing outside and you're on location or whether whether you're working from a photograph now going back to some of the points you made before nishan that you know most of the work that we've had to do has been from photographs over the last 18 months i mean i've done a huge amount of work um But when you look at the outcomes of what I do, you can't, you, you can never tell what's from, done from a photo and what's been done on location because, you know, I can kind of play around and tweak things a little bit. The major, major difference is the experience of, of, of doing it because from a, a photograph, time stands still. Every single thing is jumping back at you, isn't it? With the same level of, of attention. You know, there could be in the main subject of your photograph, which perhaps is a, a gorgeous bridge in, in Venice, is screaming at you with exactly the same level of, of, of importance as like a pavement in the, in the bottom left-hand corner. Now, if you're on location, it's not like that. You wouldn't notice the pavements. You'd, you'd only see the bridge. And then you'd start scanning the scene for the other things that you feel are important, which might not be within that kind of frame of, 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 of reference. So you start looking to the left, you start looking to the right. But the other thing, which I think is, is, is even more important, is that when you're on location and you're drawing for, say, three hours, it's a record of that three hours. And in that time, things change. You know, you change. You know, your confidence level changes. Your knowledge of the place changes. 
the heat, the energy, the smell, the noise, the people, the interaction. You know, a dog might come along and have a crap in front, right in front of you. You know, somebody might drop some chewing gum on the floor. Um, so, so all of those things kind of matter and they all become part of the story that you're telling in, in that picture. Yeah, your evolving mood, your irritation level, even if you're like uncomfortable in the heat, it is reflected and it is represented in your work in some way, perhaps yeah. in the way that your lines might get hurried. So I really like the part you just said about the equal level of uh, like the way everything in the scene in a photograph screams at you with the same intensity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because that's exactly it. So I draw very quickly. I, I do drawings under an hour whenever I go outside. And part of that is quickly because I don't do color in my work very often. But this idea of focusing on one thing and other things sort of drifting away or blurring away in my vision, my mental attention that I give them and fading in the amount of detail, it, it, it gets reflected in my work because then I give less attention and I give therefore less time and I put less work and less lines into these things that I care less about. But if I'm working from a photograph, that kind of decision-making that this gets less detail, that gets more, it's more of a mental challenge for me. It's because harder. Like you mentioned, yeah, it is. It's harder. It's, it's screaming at me the same way. It's demanding that it also be put down on the page as equal as that bridge in Venice. Mm, it's harder. And I think the other thing as well is that we often... Because we spend such a lot of time looking at pictures, looking at images, whether it's on a TV screen or an iPad or whatever, that a lot of our visual sensibility is dictated by looking at flat images. So, so a lot of people say to me, I love how you distort your perspective. You know, all your like lines are really, really quirky. And I said, but I don't do it on purpose. That's how I see it. That's what it's like on location. Because you're not drawing from a fixed spot. Often you're moving around. So I, I often move, so I'll sit down on a bench, but then I might sit on the floor or I might stand up. So if I'm there for three hours, I might just keep constantly moving. And and that's kind of reflected in maybe the, the way in which some of the lines look a little bit exaggerated. But also it's a construction, you're trying to fit everything in. So sometimes you need to compress things or make things longer. You know, it's it's not we're not copying a photograph, but the problem I think some people might find is that they're measuring it against a photograph and and that's that's the difficulty of it because photographs have their own laws of, of perspective you know they kind of exist almost in <laughs> in their own little world from what i think is real visual perception on on location yeah yeah that's that's such a great point um now let me again cycle back to uh, some of the past um while you were a student and you already discovered outdoor sketching and you've discovered this love for sketchbooks, for example, but still when you're in university and you're studying fine art, you have these, uh, we were talking about uh, peer, well, not peer pressure, but peer support and the the, the idea of being, uh, of doing things that appeal to other people and getting validated by other people in a lot of sense, validated by authority figures and institutions in a lot of sense. So when you were a student and you've got these different things that you're excited about, nonetheless, what kind of ideas did you have for, you know, what is the, what is your future as an artist? Was urban sketching? And, you know, I, I think about how watercolors are regarded in the traditional hierarchy of the arts. And it's not as gallery friendly, let's say, as oils often are considered. So 
what 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 did what kind of ideas did you have for the kind of artist you could become and uh what were you thinking then okay that's a great great question so so when, when i was when i was a student at, at university in london where i was for th- three years um my my work was obviously figurative and a lot of the students work was abstract you know and we were encouraged to kind of be whatever we wanted but a lot of the tutors were kind of abstract artists as well and we weren't really encouraged to work in watercolor it was all oil painting and that was fine for me because that's how I, kind of how i was working for a long long time and um, but, but after i after i and I, did, and I did really well at college you know i got a first in my degree and and i i learned loads of stuff and things like that but what college didn't teach any of us really was how to become a professional artist there was there was no no talk about how you set yourself up as a business because that's ultimately what you have to become if you want to make a living out of being an artist and there was no instruction in that whatsoever so we all left loving art and being really good but we didn't know the first thing about selling so i i decided that i wanted to become a teacher because it was something that always interested me but i didn't want to be an art teacher i wanted to be a, a primary school teacher so a primary school teacher is someone that teaches really small children so I had a class of, of children ranging from, say, seven-year-olds up to 11-year-olds. And that class of children stayed with me for the whole year. And I taught them everything. I taught them maths, I taught them English, science, geography, history, art, technology, everything. And I did I did that for 10, 10 years. And I loved every minute of it. It was just amazing. But while I was doing that, I was still painting and selling. And I was selling, you know, really successfully. Um, because my work was, you know, quite commercial. And then I started working for the Education Authority as what was called an advisory teacher, which means I was going around schools and I was training primary school teachers in in creativity. Um, But I was still selling and I was still painting. And then gradually I faded that out because I was doing so many workshops and I was doing so much other stuff as well. And I was selling loads of prints and originals and things. So I didn't really feel the need to work in schools anymore so so that gradually stopped but what what happened was as soon as i kind of started doing workshops i kind of knew exactly what to do because i've kind of been teaching for years i've been painting for years and it just kind of brought everything together really everything just slotted in into place so going back to what you said before about being an urban sketcher. I mean, urban sketching didn't really exist back then. People were just drawing on location, but we didn't call it urban sketching. I think it only came about about 10, 12, 15 years ago. So I've been drawn outside on location, like most people have, but there was no community, there was no group. You know, we, we, didn't, we, we, we weren't like a family, which we are now. That only really came about, I think, through obviously social media and all the chapters evolving over, over, the, over the world. So I was kind of working very much kind of in, in isolation as an artist for a long, long time, but I was teaching. And then as soon as I found out about urban sketching, which was, I guess, about 2014, maybe about seven, seven years ago, um, I thought, wow, this is, this is like, this is what I do. I mean, because I paint cityscapes and this is amazing. And then I found out all about the teaching and the uh, uh, and the symposiums and, the, you know, the workshops that you could do. So I thought, wow, this is great. I'll, I'll start doing this. This is amazing because I kind of knew exactly what to do. 
because of my teaching background, I kind of I can break it all down and explain things, you know, hopefully quite clearly to people. And I just sort of took to it really, really easily. And I, I've loved every minute of it up until COVID came along, <laughs> which which stopped me from doing it. So um, so that's kind of like my my background to, to how I've arrived at where I am now, you know, just marrying the teaching experience and the the drawing and painting and messing around on location stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah, that actually segues perfectly into a question that I wanted to ask you, which was that uh, with your primary school experience, you've been teaching young children. And now when you have art workshops, you're teaching grown adults. What are some ways that they are exactly the same thing? Brilliant. That's great. Great. I love that question. That's such a good question. Okay. Um, So how are they similar? Right. Everybody needs to know the big picture, first of all. So whether you're seven or 70, we all need to know the journey that we're going to go on. Okay, so this is where we're going, guys. And this is how we know when we've got there. And these are all the steps that we're going to take to, to get on, on that on that path. And I think that's, that's, to me, that's really important that you give people the big picture. So when I do a workshop or when I'm teaching seven-year-old children, you know, you start off guys today this is what we're going to be learning and this is how we're going to get there and these are the things that we're going to be doing the other thing as well is you have to be really nice to people you have to be engaging you you know you you have to make sure that everyone feels relaxed and comfortable in your in your presence so you, you know you've just got to be yourself you can't be anything other than yourself so I'd like to think that I am really really approachable really friendly I've got hopefully a really good sense of humor I've got loads of dirty jokes and I don't take what I do too seriously I mean it is serious but I I try not to take it too seriously I try and I feel like the dirty jokes don't work in the primary school environment no no no, we have to no (laughs) but you have to have a fantastic sense of humor you know you have to have a great sense of humor with 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 the children um and just just be yourself and just be engaging but the other thing as well i think is really key is is feedback you know everyone needs to know how they're doing and with working with primary school children you have to be super super positive and with students as well i am i'm super super positive i'm not i'm not negatively critical because because what i do and this seems to work really well is when i run a workshop I have very clear learning objectives. So, you know, these are the things that we're going to be doing. Now, it might be using a limited range of colour. So we're going to use three colours, but within that, we're going to try and maximise the effects. Or we're going to use lots of positive white space in the sketch. Or we're going to be using lots of hatching techniques to build up tone or whatever it could be. And then when we do the evaluation at the end, we judge the work against the learning criteria. So people know that they've all been successful because they'll all have done it, because I'll have taught them to do it. So, you know, that's how we will judge it. Now, I do that because in my past, in my own kind of learning, people have not done that to me. And I've gone away thinking, well, why Why did you say that? What? Where did it go wrong? What, 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 what went on there? Because I didn't really know what I was meant to be learning in the first place, but they just said that wasn't very good. That was no good. I can remember at school, at school, when I was about 10, being screamed at by my art teacher because I was doing a painting and I was mixing the paint on the paper. And and she says, no, you don't do that. You mix it on the palette. But she never told me. She never said, don't mix it on the paper. But she just screamed at me for doing it. 
I mean, that's exactly how I paint now. I mix on the paper. Sometimes I mix on the palette, but I mainly pick mix on the paper because it's so much quicker. It's so much more fun and it's so much more effective. So I encourage people to do that. But I can remember being screamed at by this art teacher who, who were mad at me because I was mixing the colours on the, on, the, on the paper. So I think a lot of my teaching style as well is based upon, you know, good experiences, but also negativity, you know, bad experiences from when you, from, from your own childhood. And you think that's not how I want to be. That's not the way to do it. Yeah. And I'm thinking that, you know, when you, while you have these micro goals of whether you're teaching them hatching or whether you're teaching them about uh, the possibilities of a limited set, a uh, limited palette. The overarching lesson, at least for all of these urban sketching workshops, is always that you should leave them wanting to draw and paint more mm. and not less. Like you want them to keep doing it and you want them to do it with more and more enthusiasm going forward. And that positivity is such an important part of that. That, like, I think what I love so much about our urban sketching community is that although you can have workshops and of course the idea of a workshop is that you learn a certain skill and you get better at a very specific little thing or even a larger thing but regardless the larger point is always that you're having fun and you're going to keep doing it and you have fun painting regardless of whether you're a good painter or a bad painter and you can have fun in those two three hours even if your drawing is nothing compared to what your instructor made it's that the joy is still in the process of doing it and that's so uh i think that for me the the big the where, where these things merge where it should be the same between teaching a child and teaching an adult is that and children find this so much easier that children find so much joy in the act of doing something whereas as adults we are so preoccupied with how it will look at the end and the result of doing something needs to be as good so it can be quote unquote worth our time so to say yeah i think adults have a more kind of fixed image in their mind don't they of what what success is and what it should like look like from from experience i i, I can remember a few years ago i was teaching workshops in italy um, and there was a, a student on on the workshop who um had never ever drawn before his 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 wife had come on the workshop and at the last minute he well he was going to come anyway to accompany her but be a non-participant and at the last minute he he decided that he he would join in so he went out and he bought loads and loads of art stuff and he turned up and he'd never ever drawn before lovely lovely guy but everything he did was 100 successful because it was all based upon his his experience you know his ability level he wasn't measuring it against the photographs. There was none of this kind of judgmental stuff where you'd miss things out because it was all about what he saw and what he was able to record. So whenever we did an evaluation at the end, everything he did was just right. He managed to do everything. It was 100% successful and he loved every minute of it. And then the outcome is that, you know, he wants to go and draw again. He wants to do it again. You know, but he didn't come away with failure. You know, he came away with 100% success because he was able to do it. Um, because I don't really teach, I don't really teach techniques in my workshops. I mean, there's lots of techniques involved, but it's not about technique. It's about process. It's about understanding. It's about knowledge. It's about experience. It's about all those kind of key elements that are fundamental for anybody. Anybody can pick it up and do it. And I'll show them how, how to do it. Um, so it's not about learning a technique and applying that technique to everything, because I think, I think that's where it can be a little bit tricky 
if you rely so much upon the techniques. And and perhaps that's when it sort of matters what skill level you're coming in with and then what you're going out with. Because if it's purely about uh, mastering a technique, then you need to have a certain amount. You could be required to have a certain amount of skill level in order to in order to effectively accomplish those goals. But I love this story because this person had obviously no reference point of... So how I think of it is that he had no reference point of how he could fail in various different ways. Yeah. And he was just doing things, which is what children do. They just do things. Yeah, there was there was a real magical charm to, to, to the work that, that he did. Um, there, was, there, was, there was a kind of beauty that none of the others had because it, it, it was lacking in any kind of awareness. And I don't, I don't mean that in a kind of patronizing way, but a lot of children's art, you know, has no, as you said, no reference. So they just, they just draw in a very kind of pure and honest and direct way. No sense of style, but just it just is what it is. And a lot of artists, like, for example, Paul Clay, spent a whole lifetime, and even Picasso to some extent, a whole lifetime of, of creative work trying to get back to that point in time. You know, where they could draw with a pure kind of innocence and you know a lot of students that come on the workshops if they haven't got a massive amount of, of experience there there is a real beautiful charm to to their work the the issue is that you have to teach certain things like you have to teach composition composition is a huge big thing because if composition is lacking you might have the most beautiful charming way of drawing but you won't fit it on the page <laughs> it just it just doesn't sit well on the page so the challenge i find for anybody who who is maybe not that experienced is it's it's composition it's all about how we structure it on the page how we get that thing that you can see in front of you on the page in terms of really really simple shapes because once we've got those in place it's like the building blocks everything else fits in you know, all the, the texture, the tone, the colour, the pattern, the detail, and then the story fits around that initial frame. So that's the challenge for anybody who perhaps is very much lacking in, in experience that you have to get that kind of foundation in, first of all. Right, right, yeah. Um, let's go back now to something you were just saying about uh, the business of being an artist. So art school doesn't quite prepare you for this. And having not gone to art school, I can also say that the rest of life also does not prepare you for this. <laughs> uh, can we? Can, can you tell me a little bit about how you figured these things out then? Yeah. Like, okay. uh, what does the figuring out the business of being an artist, how does it affect things like work ethic, maybe even the kind of things you draw and paint and yeah. how you spend your yeah. time? Right. Okay. So so when I, when I left college... Um, I did a, a postgraduate teaching course and I became a teacher, but I was always still painting and drawing. Um, so I, I quite quickly, within a year of leaving college, I, I got into, or I, I was contacted by quite a few commercial galleries. And there was one particular gallery that, that started commissioning me and buying stuff off me. So I started dealing with these galleries in like a trip with a trade arrangement so that I would provide them with artwork and they'd have a huge like markup and they'd sell them so they started commissioning me you know to do all sorts of paintings and, and stuff like that and I started having loads of exhibitions and shows but in answer to your question it does affect the work the work that you do so I ended up doing you know lots of paintings at different places because I knew I could sell them and they weren't really the things that I would naturally want to do 
But the interesting thing is that once you go down that route of, of becoming a very kind of commercial orientated, because I had to, I had to make money. You know, I had two, two small children, had a big house. We, you know, we needed money. We had to make money out of it. I couldn't just go off into the studio and do my own thing. So I had to kind of adjust the, the way in which I was working and the subjects to make sure they sold. And I was lucky because they, they did sell. You know, I, I sold everything I did. And then, and then gradually there was like a bit of a turning point because I was finding, because all the work I was doing was in oil paint, there were oil paintings on canvas and, and on prime paper, but I was finding it were taking me so long. So I had this kind of like, almost like a light bulb moment. And I thought I need to change this process. I need to do something different so I can speed them up. So I started working in watercolor, but there were big, big watercolors on very heavily textured Fabriano paper. But I, I kind of stuck to the same subjects. It was still cityscapes, you know, it was still images of, you know, all the amazing architecture that you see around, around the world. But it just freed me up completely. It, it meant I could work a lot more quickly. Um, I became involved in more galleries. And it kind of got to the point, Nishant, when this is exactly what I wanted to do. You know, I didn't feel creatively frustrated. This is this is how I wanted to express myself, you know, doing these these because they, they were quite vibrant, quite dramatic, quite dynamic watercolours on textured paper, lots of splashes, you know, slightly distorted perspective. Um, not a hundred miles away from what I'm doing now, but without the pen work. So if you can imagine my work now, but with no pen work, it was kind of like that. And I did this for years and I loved it. And I was really successful and I was involved in loads of galleries. I had loads of exhibitions. Um got quite a few of them published and this went on for a long time and at the same time I was still I was still teaching I wasn't teaching full-time by then I was working for the authority um, and this kind of the two just kind of went side by side but then the other interesting side of all of this is while all this commercial stuff's going on you know me exhibiting and selling the the watercolors and and all the teachings going on whenever we went on holiday I'd always take the sketchbook with me and I do lots and lots of little pen drawings. And it was just me chilling out, not, not thinking of selling, not thinking of galleries, not thinking of commissions, agents, nothing like that. So th these were the three strands going on. There was all the commercial painting going on. There was me drawing on holiday. And then there was me teaching teachers, training teachers for the authority. And then in about 2014, they all just came together. Those three strands just connected together, drawing, painting and teaching. And the best way to express that was through urban sketching workshops. Yeah. And, and also the, the travel aspect. And the travel and the linking back to the, the finding your space in a city, which is what urban sketching was, was all about. But I tell you what, what, what I think is, is really interesting is that for years and years and years, so we're talking maybe 15 years, I was painting, you know, really successfully watercolour paintings um, for loads of galleries. I think I had three agents who were buying, everyone was buying stuff off me and it was really successful. But I, I was working in isolation. I didn't know any other artists. There was no artists for me to talk to because, you, you know, we're all not in competition, but there's no need for me to connect with artists because I'm not going to learn anything from them. 
um, because I know what I'm doing. I mean, there's loads of artists I admire, but they probably didn't live in our country. So there's no way I'd ever get to know them and there'd be no point. So you never ever connected with any artists. So the only conversations you ever had, or I ever had for that period of time, would be with agents talking about money, talking about commissions, talking about subjects, talking about frames, talking about bollocks. It was that, that was the conversation. It was just all that. And then suddenly, when the urban sketching world took over, it became a different conversation. It became all about the stuff that we talk about now, you know, all about the experience, all about the process, all about the learning, the working together. Let's go and have a coffee. Let's go and have a glass of wine. You know, let, let's look at your sketchbook. Isn't this great? Isn't this so important? This is so powerful. You know, all those conversations that we have now are to do with even mental health, you know, to do with the difference between a photograph and the difference between working outside and that we're all in it together. You know, we're all just on this amazing journey together and we're just trying to find our way to the back of the sketchbook. And it's just so cool. It's it's such a brilliant thing to be to be part of. And I didn't have that for such such a long time, which is probably why I enjoy it so much now. You know, I just en enjoy it. It's like I get the chance to travel and just teach these like fantastic, well, I'm not, I'm not going to say they're fantastic workshops, but fantastic experiences that I really, really enjoy that everybody else just really enjoys as well. So, um, yeah. And, and the fact that we resonate with such completely like-minded people for me also, the urban sketching community has been the real game changer more than uh, more than other aspects of uh, like the community. Like I've, I've learned a lot from it. I've, I would attribute a lot of my skills to looking at the work of other sketchers and peering over their shoulders, asking them questions. But simply just the idea that all of us agree on this basic thing that it's lovely to be outside and it's lovely to look at things and to draw them and that there is no hierarchy in this group that anybody is uh, empowered to speak to anyone else and there's no sense of up or down or lesser or better and knowledge sharing also is happening in this flat flat system and th these are really the 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 most beautiful parts of this community for me that that have enabled so much uh, so much interaction is enabled simply because there is no sense of this hierarchy or of permission or needing to or being unable to speak to someone. Mm. Yeah, you, you, you find you find that the um, the symposiums that, that you, you know, when you when you I, I used to love just wandering around and, and just seeing what other people were doing and, and just chatting and everyone was so generous with their time. That you know they, they'd be in the middle of a drawing and they'd stop and they talk to you and just you know you'd say well what 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 paint brand are you using what's that brush how does that brush work what paper's that you know where do you come from and and everyone was just like we just had this common common language of of just loving being outside looking at stuff and recording stuff and and it, and it was just great it was I mean I can't wait for them to start up again and I'm convinced they will I know it might be a while. But I'm convinced they will, and it will just be such a party. It it will absolutely. I can't even imagine the first seminars and symposiums. They'll be so exciting. I think I think we might have to do uh, two two a year. I think for about four yeah. years, just so we play catch up. So yeah, we can all catch up again. That'll be that'll be so good. Catch up is the right word. We need to make up for this lost time by by mm. doing this a lot. We we have a we have a couple of urban sketching groups where I live. So we've got a Wirral group, which is kind of where I live, and then we've got a Liverpool group. And 
and we meet you know once a month like i guess a lot of the um urban sketching groups and it's great because i just i just go off and i just draw alongside my friends and it's it's lovely and we just you know we have a few drinks afterwards or go for about two eats and and it's great because you look at what other people do and they're drawing maybe the same view as you but they see it differently and it's it's just wonderful that we all see the world in different ways and we see it through different colors and different shapes and you know some some people choose to put certain things in that you'd never dream of of putting in i mean i i try i try not to put too many cars in my my sketches even if there's lots of cars i'll maybe only put one or two as a kind of a reference point in terms of scale but some people kind of draw the cars first and then kind of frame it with the buildings in the background or you know some people put figures in and they put draw you know they draw people walking across across the scene and I, I love that I love the fact that we all just see it differently don't we I find that to be perhaps the most fascinating part of all these meetups that you can be sitting next to someone or someone could be just a few feet away from you and what they see can be sometimes so different from what you saw or what yeah. you thought about uh, drawing so I had this experience last week I was sketching with somebody and just uh, we were just two of us and we were sketching in front of some trains at a train station and it they were all out of service so they were there for a long time for us to draw and he was just 10 feet away from me to my left and afterwards we looked at each other's drawings and you could tell so much about what we thought was interesting because we chose our spots mm. and then we chose how to draw and where to focus and i realized looking at him that i try to minimize pers- like i understand perspective now i have a working knowledge and from giving a couple of workshops now i have a more technical knowledge as well mm. um but i try to minimize the role of perspective in my drawings whereas he was making perspective very central to his drawings mm. so everything was obeying perspective or was enhancing the sense of perspective whereas yeah. in my case i had only a, a one tiny part of my drawing that was about the perspective and everything else was out of out of that uh, that realm of showing perspective and these these little things that you find out like who who puts people in their drawing who puts cars who focuses on the trees and so for example me when i'm drawing a city scene i don't like to draw windows i don't care for things that are all parallel to each other one after another in perspective so chicago is full of skyscrapers but i would try to not draw those skyscrapers at all because the windows would just tire me out and i would try to avoid all the trees in front of the buildings and just draw the buildings and pretend the trees aren't there yeah because yeah. i found trees difficult just a purely out of line work mm. so um let's let's uh, let's go into the subject of drawing process uh, usually i i don't think i usually ask my guest much about how they draw their drawings because uh i find other things uh, equally interesting but in your case it seems like it's impossible to understand to fully appreciate your work if i don't ask you about how you draw it, mm-hmm. to go sort of behind the curtain mm-hmm. and I've, to do that uh to learn a bit myself and i would urge all the listeners to do the same i've seen videos of a few of your demos uh there's a lot of stuff on youtube but it also strikes me at the same time that demos are not really a true representation of how a person draws at their leisure because uh demos are firstly they're significantly shorter in your case uh from how you would otherwise draw at a scene and it feels to me that there is a slight uh performative air 
to the act of giving a demonstration. We might feel the need to be have show a little more flair, be a little more exciting with our stroke work. So um, I, I kind of want to ask you how a typical urban sketch goes for you. I, I love the title of your book because I think it describes it so perfectly, layers of looking. It absolutely nails what you're doing because your work is constructed in these layers one on the other and sometimes when i'm looking at even a one minute long time lapse of your drawing at the 30 second mark i think this is where i would stop i would be done with this drawing but you're going on and on and so i want to talk to you i want you to go through this process with especially with reference to the materials you use so you use dry markers you use pens and then there are watercolors yeah but they are not in a linear process usually people do one and then they do the other and then they do a third and that's it but you go round and round with them and they seem to have different functions at different levels of completion yeah. for you. So okay. could you take me through yeah, this? Okay. Okay. That's a, that's a great question. This, this is a big one, isn't it? This is like a really big one. Okay. So if I just take you back to, to kind of um, why I do what I do, this might be the best way to, to sort of touch upon the process is that if you can imagine, I, 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 I go somewhere. So let, let's say I, I go to Vancouver. Okay, I come over to Vancouver and you, you take me out for the day and we rock up at this square and this square is made up of lots and lots and lots of amazing buildings and maybe pedestrian crossings and signs and shop fronts and all this kind of thing. And it really grabs me. It grabs me visually. Okay, so I kind of ask myself the question, you know, why do I want to draw this? What is it about this that, that I find interesting? And the first thing is it'll have lots of shapes lots of really interesting shapes lots of colors lots of narrative lots of potential for me to tell my story of being in vancouver with you so that's my starting point so then i've got to think right well how how do i construct it because i'm not i'm not recreating it i'm making a piece of art based on it okay so i've got to i've got to start constructing it so then the first thing is is shaping it all onto the piece of paper now the paper i use is always 40 by 30 so it's always what we call an a3 sheet of paper so it's quite big so i think it's 16 inches by 12 in like old money so i've got to construct that onto the piece of paper all the, the basic shapes the outline it could be a little bit of perspective um, so i use a, a tombow brush pen for that it's a fine the i use the fine liner part of a tombow brush pen because it's water soluble so the kind of the lines will eventually disappear. And I use a kind of mid-gray, which is a bit like a soft-loaded pencil. So the first thing I'll do is I'll, I'll map it map it all out. And the focus of my attention on that is to really make sure I can fit everything in. And it's, it's telling me things like where the main focus of attention is going to be, where the white spaces are going to be, and all that kind of stuff. So that, that'll take me maybe three or four minutes to do, really quick, because I draw incredibly quickly. And then I'll go over it with a fine liner, a permanent fine liner, normally a 0.3, because that's a kind of mid, 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 mid-sized mm -hmm. one. And the purpose behind the second process is to tighten up those first marks and add more information, add a lot more kind of information. Okay. And then I put the colour on. So the colour's going on really, really early in the process, because I've not touched upon tone or detail at this stage. I just put the colour on. So the colour's going on, say, 15 minutes into the into the sketch. And the reason I put the colour on so early is that my background is in painting. I mean, all my life I've been a painter. So that's the thing I find 
is is my strength out of all of them is is, is putting color on to the point where i don't even worry i just chuck the whole thing on keep fingers crossed and it normally works <laughs> watercolors like that right it's Water a bit of faith yeah, watercolors like that but the, what i'm trying to do is i'm painting or what i am doing is i'm painting space i'm not painting shapes i'm painting three-dimensional space and that's why my colors blend together it's why they're they, they sit alongside each other that's why they blend they bleed they splash they do because they, they create drama on the page so the watercolor stage is a bit it's about painting space but it's also the subjective part of the process because the first two stages the sketching the outline and putting the medium shapes on are very much driven by the objective they're very much to do with what you see what you record why you're there but this process the painting is all about me it's about my response it's about my feelings about it it's it's my choice of colors it's the colors that i think sit perfectly with both the scene and my relationship and my feelings at that, that particular moment in time so to help me do that i'll probably just limit the colors i'll probably maybe use four colors and one of them might be like a local color like for example in vancouver there might be a kind of a, a bright a bright blue building it could be a cerulean blue building you know with a shop front and it'd be silly not to do that cerulean blue so that might be the starting point and then all the other colors work around that and then when that's while that's drying i'll go off and have a coffee or maybe a glass of wine or a beer or go for a walk or maybe do a bit of shopping and then when it's dry i'll then use the brush pens again but this times i use the brushy part the the, the 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 brush part and i'll start working on top of the colors to develop all the kind of the tonal values to make the whole thing a lot more solid and chunky and three-dimensional and then all those stages then have been leading up to the final stage which is the big stage which is all about storytelling and that's where the real creativity comes in because then you're adding all the, the details you know you're shaping in the windows you're putting the cobbles in you're putting the signage in you're playing around you're adding things you're taking things out and using all sorts of different techniques as well to kind of slowly build up and the detail takes up a big part of the process but then at the end i might put more color on if i feel i need to and all of that takes about two and a half hours maybe maybe about two i can normally finish i'm normally finished within three hours and it certainly takes me more than two so it's between two 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 and a half maybe three hours it, it depends on the subject some subjects take you know a lot longer than than others and i, I imagine places like vancouver if you've got lots and lots of blocks of flats and lots of windows then then that's going to take a little bit longer but um but it's great it's great fun i mean i love it and one of the things i try and do is if i'm running a workshop i i would i i don't when i run a workshop i don't just demonstrate little techniques and little tasks i do a full-on sketch myself and just stay one step ahead of students and the idea is that i try and hopefully motivate them by showing them look this is what i do guys this is how it is for me this is how much fun i get you know just come on board with me i'll show you what we do and just follow me and and that's that's kind of how how it works yeah interesting uh lots lots of different things to unpack here so i'll go at them i'll ask you questions again and again about the process uh, little questions hopefully uh, uh the part you said about colors very interesting to me because colors are such a subjective thing for you you're not 
you're not trying to and you said this very early that you're not recreating recreating the scene you're creating a piece of art based on it mm. and that's probably most evident in what you're doing with the colors because you it it doesn't seem to matter whether there is a a, a blue or a gray there you have put it for mood based subjective reasons so uh, do you have do you have a palette then that you sort of the firstly is your palette divided into colors that you always carry with you because they symbolize certain moods and certain emotions for you or is it a function of the place you're visiting and you know would you scout a city and then try to understand if there's a color palette associated with that city in your mind no no it doesn't it doesn't really work like that um <clears throat> Vancouver for this to answer this question Vancouver is probably not not a good example because I've never been there so I don't know what the colors are there but one of the reasons I do what I do is to tell stories and it's my it's my story it's not the story of Vancouver it's, it's the story of me because that's what we do as artists you know we're we're very I don't want to use the word egocentric but we do what we do because we want to express ourselves you know we're not we're not illustrating the idea of another place it's all about what we see what we want to record ourselves so if we take as an example um amsterdam because i've drawn in amsterdam lots and lots and lots of times amsterdam for me has got um a certain atmosphere a certain feel about it and one of the things i see in amsterdam a lot is these repeated windows and these arches and these gorgeous lamps and obviously the canals and the brickwork and all that kind of thing but when it comes to the color you know you're painting you're painting what you see in front of you so you're painting say the brickwork which is generally going to be brown but that will just be your starting point so it starts off life as a brown but once that brown goes on the paper it kind of exists independent of the scene because it becomes a piece of the artwork and the artwork is not mirroring the scene the artwork is is standing alone it's standing independently of itself so once that burnt sienna goes on the on the page it then has a life of its own so then what you're doing as an artist or what i'm doing as an artist is i'm facilitating that burnt sienna so that burnt sienna goes on and it kind of sits inside part of the bridge okay quite loosely but it's not it's not doing it too precisely because it's painting the space and the space around it but then you think okay it needs something else so you you then put some ultramarine blue on and then suddenly you've got ultramarine blue you've got burnt sienna and you've got all the mixes that they create and the play that they start to perform on the page so it's a bit like it's like a playground okay and all these kids are coming out to play all your babies are coming out to play and you're pushing them around and one tool i use a lot is pure water on the brush i use the pure water to push it around and let it find its own kind of little little life really um and then it might need another color to come out to play with it as well um but a lot of these colors are just purely based on the process itself they're they're to do with the subject but they're to do with how you feel and they're also to do with what's happening in front of you so you're very much you're very much fixed in the moment which is why i think it's such a a good thing for mindfulness because you're so switched on to what's to what's happening and you're just facilitating it you just you're pushing it around and i've done this thousands of times and every time i never know what's going to happen seriously i never i never know 
what and when I'm te- when I'm teaching workshops to students or whether I'm teaching them online, I'll I'll try and I'll try and have a starting point like the analogy I used before was the, the blue building in Vancouver. So so if we took the example of um, Amsterdam, the, there might be um, there might be an archway, there might be like an arch, and then, and then the brickwork around that arch could could match like a burnt sienna. So you'd say, well, that's the starting point. The burnt sienna is going to go on first, but I know it's only going to last by itself for literally four or five seconds, and then suddenly I'm going to add something else to it, and then the two of them have a life of their own, and then another colour adds comes to the party, and then that has a life of its own, and you're just you're pushing it around. But there's there's also certain things that you're aware of, like you don't want to paint everything. You know, you, you leave lots of white space, lots of white gaps, because you know that the next stage you're going to use the brush pens and the brush pens are going to introduce lots of grey value, which is going to calm everything down. So you're quite mindful that you don't want to over overpaint it. But that just comes from practice. That just comes from. Right. You know, yeah. Haven't done yeah. it one or two times before. It, it sounds a little bit like uh, like 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 jazz. You're, you're sort of reacting to what just happened before and that helps you shape your next step and then that becomes the history of which dif- which influences what you do next how the colors mixed in that moment on that spot when so and so things were happening around you and inspired you to do or to play with this other thing instead in this other location and so ev- like a, a, the same sketch at the same location on different days could yield completely different oh, results and they would yeah. all be their own magic. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I often say to people, look, I could paint this picture and use a completely different set of colors and it would be fine. You know, it, it would be absolutely fine. That doesn't really help the students because right. <laughs> most, most people like to think there's only one way of doing it and this is the way I want to do it. But, but you know, the point is you can, you can just use whatever colors you, you, you know, as, as long as, you're not overdoing it. You mix them well. You use lots of pure water. You leave lots of white space coming through. And the other thing is you try and match the tonal value of what you can see in front of you. So a lot of it comes down to tonal value as well. That's a key a key part of it. You can play around with the colours. You know, you can change the colours, but you need it to, to to match the tonal value. And I think I think that's that's quite quite key as as well. And I often use a lot of well, I don't use a lot, but I use some black and black and whites. I find them really helpful as well to mix some blacks and, and whites in. Um, Interesting. So you, you mentioned, uh, so we talked about colors being subjective to all of these different factors. And you mentioned that the lines are, however, more objective. They're more uh, loyal to what is in front of you. Yeah. That being said, I, I do like how your lines are still they're not quite measured, you know, like they're a little wonky. Your the way you do the cobblestones, the way you do the bricks, they go a little up, they go a little down. And uh, it reminds me of this thing that I say, I've said a couple of times now on the show, uh, I talk about the difference between accuracy and precision. So uh, speaking as a as an engineer, because I studied as an engineer for too long, before I decided to become an artist, a lot of those ideas uh, are part of how I draw. So accuracy is how exactly correct you are. And how exactly right your perspective is, how right the angle of that window and that brick is. And precision is not how correct you are, but how consistent you are. So if you have the same kind of output again and again, if you're just off by five marks, if you're throwing darts and you're off by the same amount every time, 
then you're very precise, although you might not be very accurate. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, I like to think of that in terms of the line work, because there is a part of me that is always trying to be accurate, the mechanical engineer in me, but the artist in me is trying to tell him that you don't have to be exactly correct. You just have to make sense within this world that you've created on the page. So when you told me about this outer, uh, bigger, larger plan you make with the with the fine edge of the Tombow brush pens, and then you, uh, uh, you know, you delve deeper into it and you make shapes out of it. And then afterwards, you're coming back with the lines again to do the bricks, to do the cobblestones, mm. to do these details. Yeah. They're, they're not exactly accurate, but they sort of make sense in that space. So some of the lines are going a little here, a little there. The bricks are not really even properly constructed industrial bricks. They're a little wonky. They go up and down a little bit. The windows seem to do that same thing, but they all stick together with like within this world on that one page that day, they kind of make sense. Is there is this like... Uh, do you do you feel that compulsion? Is there a pull in you to be a little more accurate? Do you do you think it's part of maintaining a sense of play that you're not? Um, my my paintings and drawings are exactly how I want them to be. But so so everything I do, I do it for a reason, and and everything's intentional. So if I want it to be playful, it's playful. If I want it to be exact and precise, it's exact and precise. Um, but I think the, to, to answer your question, it's a bit like the analogy that I used before about the colours, is the lines have a life of their own as well. You know, you want them to be, in some ways you want them to flirt with what you're drawing, but at the same time you want them to stand alone. So if I want to draw a straight line, I can draw a straight line as well as anybody, but I choose often not to, because I sometimes think a straight line is what it is, but sometimes a line has a life of its own as well. And everybody has their own individual line. So sometimes a line can wobble and it can bend. And if a line wobbles and bends, so if, for example, it's a lamppost and the lamppost is on the left-hand side and it leans away, it's then inviting the rest of the picture. But if it's straight, it draws your eye and it takes away from the rest of the picture. So that's nothing to do with perspective. That's to do with, with drama and tension in your picture. And sometimes, you know, sometimes if you're doing cobbles, the cobbles might not even be there in reality. It might not be a cobbled street, but you put cobbles in because, you know, that particular part of the picture at the bottom would look really well, look really good if it was populated with with some sort of texture, because then it would invite people to walk into the scene and walk across it. But then at the same time, you don't want all the cobbles to be too uniform because it becomes a stylization, because then it makes people think harder about what it would be like to walk along them and potentially trip over them. And then maybe some of them could not be cobbles. They could be bits of chewing gum or they could be, you know. So, so all the time, everything you do, there's a reason why why you're doing it. You know, you're just trying to make people think and I, I suppose be invited into your picture. You know, do they want to walk into your into your scene? Because the scene that you're doing is based upon the observation. It's based upon being there as an urban sketcher, but it's also based upon what you're, controlling and, and what you're wanting people to to experience so I think what and, and this is because I come at it from being an artist all my life you know I don't come at it as being perhaps an architect or, or somebody else who's perhaps more disciplined than I am who would, it would you know make everything really really precise and accurate I come at it from a much more uh, not much more but a a an artistic perspective where I think I'm more inclined to play around with, with the content 
and miss things out and put extra things in and distort stuff and, and miss out windows and, and you, you know, be a little bit more subversive, I suppose, because I feel I can, I can get away with it. I want to try and get away with it. I want to try and push it as much as I can. You know, every picture I do is the only one that ever matters. It's the most important picture. None of the others matter. It's only the one that you're doing at that precise moment in time. So I want everyone to be pushing and pushing and pushing as 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 much as as much as possible. But it doesn't always it doesn't always work out like that. That's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. <laughs> It is, but I, I completely agree with that. Like, I feel like every drawing I do is, it's it's all the better if I feel that I pushed a little bit out of my comfort zone. If I was at yeah. the edge of what I'm comfortable doing, that's when the good stuff happens. And a large part of that involves having faith that some kind of magic will show up. Like, if I just if I just try something that's a little challenging something will work. I don't know exactly how this drawing will turn out on the page, but I have the trust that it will turn out in some interesting, beautiful way if I just push a little bit more. So uh, I was thinking about the thing you said about straight lines. And uh, in my mind, almost like I, I try to do this sometimes that I, I I play with where I put my details and where I don't as a way of guiding attention across the page. So the general idea being that where there is more action where there's more character, people will look. People yeah. are turned towards areas with more stuff going on. And uh, I noticed in your demos, at least, that you also do this thing that I like to do, which is draw a lot of long lines and draw the take the one line across different objects. So there's a bit of dis dissociation from the border of one object or the shape of one object, but letting that same line define multiple objects. And... I like it because uh, something, again, you said that when you do lines like this, they have some amount of character and that character is unique. That's your long line and that's my long line. And everybody has their own long line, like the, the little jitters they have or whether they go mm. absolutely straight or if they curve away right at yeah. the end because that's how your wrist works. Yeah. Those yeah. things are very characteristic of you. Yeah. And that's perhaps the best way and I encourage people to do this is key, is that before you think about drawing well, more importantly, is it that you draw exactly who you are? And the more you try to, to trust yourself, again, a long line is putting a lot of trust in yourself that you'll be able to not screw this up completely. But <laughs> that's where the character comes out too. It's like, your, it's like your signature, isn't it? You know, we all have our own handwriting and our own signature. And I think that's what it is. Your line is your, is your signature. But this goes back to the point I made before, though, about how I don't teach techniques, because I think if you're teaching techniques, I mean, I do teach techniques, but it's not all about techniques, because that's when you're forcing people to do things that don't come naturally to them. If you teach them things like composition and structure and things like depth and space and, and noticing things, that's a big part, just looking, looking, looking and thinking, thinking where it's going to go, then their own line encourages their own line to come out. Because it doesn't matter if you've got a straight, bold line or you've got a wobbly line or you've got like a feathered line or a hatching line or a dotty line. Because you can still come on board with me and do all the things that I'm teaching you. It will just have its own its own voice. But you'll still be able to fulfill all the learning goals that we're, we're trying, to, trying to achieve. Let's take a short break here so that I can thank my sponsors. 
This episode and this podcast is made possible by the generous support of its patrons. I want to thank Jim, Diane, Ravleen, Matthew and Lisa for buying me coffee this month. If you like my show and appreciate the work I put into it, supporting it is quite easy. All you have to do is buy me a coffee. I'd also like to give a shout out to my regular patrons who support me with coffee every month. Thank you Becky, Ruth, Vinayakam, Anne, Mark, Russ, Sanket, Santosh, Dinah, Megan, Mark, ATN, Carr, Deborah, Emma, Martha, Ellen, Blake, Martha, Ashley, Kate, Mike, Molly, Melanie and Henrico. I just sent out my monthly members exclusive post to each of them. In it I discussed some of the sneaky art I have made this month, offered them a peek at my upcoming podcast interviews, and also solicited their feedback about some exciting plans I have for the future. I'm really enjoying this one-to-one relationship that I'm able to build with committed listeners through buy me a coffee. I'm using it as an opportunity to develop a focus group of sorts with whom I can discuss my rough ideas and from whom I can understand what I'm doing and what I can do better next time. I'm all in for the creator economy and as a listener you can be too. If there is a content creator whose work you like on the internet, nowadays there is a way for you to support them. It often doesn't cost a lot of money and it lets us play a direct role in building the kind of content we enjoy on the internet. So if you like this show, check out my buy me a coffee page where I offer all kinds of goodies and giveaways. There's a link to it in the show notes of this episode. Now let's get back to the conversation. What is it like to draw a scene for two and a half to three hours? I have no idea. I have no idea what it would mean to do this, and I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have the patience for it. So naturally, I was very curious to know how and why Ian does this. Let's listen. <laughs> Uh, an aspect of your sketches that's fascinating to me personally is the length of time that you give them. Um, my longest sketches, and this is primarily because there's no color, but also because I'm an impatient artist. Uh, my longest sketches are maybe 60 minutes. And after that, I'm done with the moment. I'm, I want to go on to another drawing or I want to just get up and walk around. But I'm in, I was curious to hear that when you're doing these sketches, which are two and a half hours, you still have... Uh, periods where you take a break in them mm-hmm. so yeah. my initial question was actually whether this whole period is one of intense focus for you like if you're always in the zone so to speak or if you disengage in the middle so you've you've kind of answered that for me by uh, explaining how you completely disengage from the act of drawing itself in the middle of it while you let the colors dry so if considering that you do that uh coming back to the drawing, coming back to it again, giving it, you know, taking it beyond the one and a half hour mark to the two hour mark from the two to the two and a half hour mark. Is there like, is it simply a consequence of the process or is a part of it also this conscious effort to, to dig a little bit deeper, to know that you will find something more if you just give it a little bit more time which which of the two do you think okay that's again that's a very very good question i think a lot of it is to do with the fact that i choose fairly complex things to draw in the first place so i don't i wouldn't rock up and just draw a doorway which would probably take me an hour to do i try and look for fairly complex scenes so i can challenge myself 
and and also the size of the paper as well because it's a big big sheet of paper so those probably those two factors automatically mean that it's going to take a fair amount of time because some of the drawings that i did years ago the ones that i mentioned previously when i was <clears throat> sketching on holiday you know they only took like 15 20 minutes they were just like little little doodles in a fairly small sketch pad and they were very much about recording the moment whereas what i'm doing now is is i'm trying to tell my story of the place and for me to do that because there's a lot i want to tell um it it, it just i have to kind of feel i've got to go through this layering process of, of, of slowly you know building building it up um because i do try and find fairly you know complicated scenes a couple of weeks ago we were we were filming with one of the companies I work for, which is Urban Sketch Course. And we went to a place called Robin Hood's Bay, which is a gorgeous old fishing village on the Yorkshire coast. And we did, I think, six workshops. And every scene that we, we did was a really complicated scene. You know, lots of houses, lots of perspective, lots of boats, lots of stuff going on. And they, they took like four, four, five hours to film each one because there's such a lot for me for me to draw. Um and if, if I'd not chosen scenes like that, if I'd just chosen something really simple, like, like a window or, you know, a plant in a pot, or it, it, it wouldn't be worth me doing. It, it's not me. It's not what I, I want to say. So when I, when I go somewhere, I want to try and say as much about that place as I can. And I want to say funny things about it, serious things about it, playful things about it, you know, personal things about it. I want to try and put as many things into it as I can. Plus... You know, I want to I want to have as much fun as, as, as possible. So it, it, it does take a, a long time. But the the other thing is because the paint goes on right in the middle, you, you, you automatically get like a bit of a, a break because you're waiting for paint to dry. And sometimes, yeah, it can take it can be fairly quick if it's a really hot day or it can you know, it can take half an hour if it's quite chilly. So that that automatically gives you a nice kind of natural, natural sort of break. As, as, as well but the other thing is, as well that I think is, is quite relevant is that when you've done a lot of drawing over the years you you end up having a kind of a bank of knowledge quite naturally about all the work that you've done and you end up not repeating things but you you when you're working on a certain part of the picture and say you're getting towards the end you can remember other drawings that you've done which are very similar and how you've resolved them and how you've polished them off towards the end. So it kind of like you're putting more and more pressure on yourself because because you know what you're able to do because you've done it in other pictures. So you think, well, really, I should be able to do it in the next one. So rather than kind of leaving it kind of on, and I, I'll give you an example. It's say, say, for example, you're doing cobbles. So you, you, you've, you've gone somewhere into really old little streets and there's cobbles. Now, years ago, you might have done a few little, a, su a suggestion of a few cobbles, but then the next time you do a few cobbles and you make them different sizes or the next time you do them different sizes and you do hatching in some of them or and the next time you put tone work in the next time you put you paint some of them and then the next time you put little black negative space in between you know to show little shadows in between or the next time you make some of the lines thicker and thinner so it looks like some of them have sunk so all the time you're learning from previous ones and then you approach your next one with all that knowledge that you've got. And then it kind of puts you under pressure 
So in a couple of years time, my drawings are going to take me like five hours. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's quite interesting. Does it also take you, so thinking of, uh, well, one part of it is the time investment that you're going to put into a drawing once you settle down to it. The second is now thinking of this bank of knowledge, all the different things that you want to do with it, like, you know, the different stories you want to tell, the different little games you want to play on your page. Does it also take you a lot of time then to decide where you're going to draw from? Yeah, what, yeah. Say you're at a location, yeah. you're at you're at a prominent place, you're at, uh, now, now, do you circle around a lot to to figure out this is my point of view? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people do. And I think especially when you, you know you're going to invest most of your day on that one particular spot, you know, you, you do. And some some locations jump out at you straight away. So, for example, going back to the, the, the story I said before about when we went to Robin Hood's Bay um, to do the filming, I spent quite a lot of time on Google Earth just dropping the little person and just wandering around. So I kind of, I knew probably about three of the locations and exactly the angles I wanted to put in because I'd already sourced them. And also you can go on things like Instagram and you can, you know, just you know, do a, a tap hashtag search and you can see what other people have done in, in similar spots. So you can kind of get a good idea for certain certain compositions before, before you go, but it doesn't always work like that. Sometimes you go somewhere and you've no idea what you're going to be finding. And I know when I was in Porto a few years ago, a few of the squares down by the river, it was like so many different angles and so many different potential views that you could you could draw. And so you, you, you put your stool down and you'd sit down and you'd think, oh, I'll just shift over to the right a little bit or no, I'll just move back. or And then, of course, you've got other issues like traffic and, and lorries and and then suddenly, you know, somebody comes along and, and stands right in front of you. or And there's all, all those sort of factors that you've got to take into account. So, yeah, it's, it's some, sometimes it can be really straightforward. But a lot of the time you are just bouncing around trying to find exactly the right, the right location. When I was in Amsterdam for the symposium, we were doing a workshop across one of the bridges. And about halfway through the workshop, this enormous white van came along and just parked just across the bridge. And it basically blocked 50% of, of the view. So I just said, look, try and draw around it if you can, guys. Try and do the bits that you can see. Uh, and then thankfully, it went after about 20 minutes. But this is going to happen all the time. <laughs> you know, this, this, is, yeah. this is always, always going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I also noticed, uh, so you mentioned that you, you're drawing on these A3 sheets of paper. Do you find... Uh... Do you find that, I, well, it, it, it's been your decision, so probably you don't, but uh, do you find that uh, changing, like, so you, you've done uh, a lot of work in sketchbooks when you travel, and those are shorter sketches, because of course, you're traveling with family, you're not traveling around people who have patience for your three hour long yeah. <laughs> sessions in one spot. Uh, do you do you have do you find any benefit in this kind of so uh, 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 like changing up the format of your page, changing up the size of your page, but also the like I think of every page as the frame through which I'm looking at the world. So I have these sketch pads, which are four by six inches. And uh, in portrait format, it's one way to look at the world. If I'm going to draw in a portrait format on four by six, I'm going to now notice more vertical structures mm -hmm. or more yeah. interesting things happening in the vertical, you know, uh, foreground, background, middle ground format. Mm -hmm. But if I'm drawing in a wide sketchbook, I'm now more interested in my foreground or one particular one of these three and how it manifests in space around me to my left and my right. 
so have you have you put yourself through this uh, and how do you tackle that like mm. this in the, this kind of interest that happens in your subject mm. because some things are more interesting left to right some things are more interesting front to back mm. how do you tackle that in your a3 sheet okay um again that's a really good point i mean i i've been to some places with my a3 sketchpad which is always landscape and i've i've looked at scenes which really need to be vertical which need to be portraits you know i'm thinking of some of the major city scapes that, that you come across um but i've always done the landscape i've i've, I've not really turned turned it around only maybe once or twice um so so what it, what happens is is the format that i'm working to the frame that I'm, i'm working through dictates what i go looking for so for example i'm i'm meant to be hopefully going to new york in october and i'm going to be running some workshops in manhattan and then i'm doing a series of workshops kind of upstate and i know that that most of the scenes really need to be in a portrait in a vertical format but i'm not going to do it i'm not i'm going to do them horizontal so that means i'm going to have to be looking for things at a much lower level so i'll be focusing on things like street signs you know on on stop signs don't walk on pedestrian crossings and and a little suggestion of the buildings as they recede off down down in, into the distance um, and the windows will just all be kind of cropped off at the top of the picture so i've already kind of worked all that out in my mind because i don't i just don't want to twist it round i don't want to do it vertical because i don't i don't want to be looking up i want to be at ground level because that's where all the interest is for me that that's where i'm i'm fascinated by the things at ground level which is why i work on a horizontal format because that's where the human interest is because basically i try and draw people without putting them in that's that's what i'm trying to do it's all about it's all about the people you know but i just don't put them yeah. in this, they... this kind of segues into three different points that i've been meaning to uh, broach <laughs> and it's lovely that we're now going naturally into them and they don't sound out of place one of them is so about uh, i think a lot about constraints so in making the choice that your drawings are going to be landscape it's a way of putting a, a constraint on yourself yeah. there are things that you will not draw there are scenes that you will not draw even if they might appeal to you you will not be able to do them justice in this format so you would rather not do it and a lot uh, like often people say that you know to do your best work you have to be free of constraints and i kind of fight i kind of push against that bit mm-hmm. because i've always thought that constraints offer us a lot of freedom they offer us the chance to go a little deeper with what we want to do so mm-hmm. one constraint yeah. already we've talked about here is the fact that you're drawing for two and a half hours mm-hmm. so there is a time investment that's very big that you have to put into a sketch and what that does to you as i see is that you therefore have to walk around your scene and you cannot pick necessarily the first point of view that you want to draw maybe it's too crowded for you to draw from maybe yeah. all the photographers are there as well yeah and I have that same kind of problem for me because I try to be as I call my art I try to be sneaky in my art I want to be inconspicuous to my subjects even if they are human subjects even if they are non-human subjects I want to be uh, the point of view I have is a little inconspicuous point of view right and that means that I cannot take the first interesting appealing point of view that occurs to me when I walk into a square that's beautiful mm-hmm. I have to take the third the fourth or the fifth point of fifth choice of point of view and this kind of constraint is a freedom in the sense that it pushes me to think again to think again and to think again and to dig a little deeper to find some more value that wouldn't have occurred to me maybe 
if I was simply doing, and this is perhaps the loss in when we, we're doing a lot of street view photography uh, sketches these days. And therefore we're drawing these iconic scenes of these iconic places from these iconic points of mm. view. And we're not really digging deeper into our own personality as a result in what we sketch. Okay. So, sorry, was there a question there? <laughs> the question that I'm coming to is about uh, personality. So yeah. uh, I notice in your drawings is there is, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there is uh, like, I don't get a sense of the, like I get a very good sense of the place, yeah. but I don't always get a very good sense of the time. Like I could okay. say about a lot of your drawings that yeah. I don't know where specifically they belong in time and time okay. in a lot of respects time could be time of year okay in some respects yeah it could be time of day in some respects mm -hmm. but it could also be uh the year or the century like mm. some of your most beautiful drawings i can imagine a lady in a corset coming out of the corner <laughs> and she would fit yeah some of your mm. most beautiful drawings in london could have an old school telephone yeah, booth there yeah. and it would yeah. fit perfectly well yeah now some some artists, they look at their work and uh, urban sketches are thought of as reportage in the sense of being grounded in space and in time. Yeah, yeah. Do, have you thought about uh, this and how do you feel about the place that your scenes occupy mm. then? Yeah, I, th I think some, I think some, some artists, like the reportage ones that you just mentioned, are very, very specific, aren't they? You know, they, they, they're very, very true and they want to record a specific time, place, event, lines all that and and you know there are some artists some urban sketches and some artists out there who who pay particular light light moods as well so you know exactly what time of the year it is and what time of the day it is um i mean i i don't do that I, i'm not really interested in in kind of like natural specific light the only light i'm interested in is is the light that's within the picture you know, the light of the like paper and capturing that kind of in an abstract artistic way so i don't i don't paint light i'm not an impressionist so you look at my pictures, you wouldn't know when they were done. You know, it could be the middle of summer. It could be like the middle of winter. The only maybe sneaky little clue you'd get is that when I was in Amsterdam a few years ago for the symposium, it was so hot. All the paint dried so quickly in the sun that a lot of the paintings in the drawings now, they've got like a kind of mottled effect. Um, but that, that doesn't really answer your question. So, no, I don't I don't do specific things like that. I, I, I just I just really abstract from the subject, the things that I, I want to tell the story that I, I want I want to tell. But I think going back to the thing you said before though about, about constraints, I think I do impose a lot of constraints upon upon myself because there's there's only certain kind of subjects I go looking for. Like I try and avoid modern buildings. I don't really put an awful lot of modern buildings in unless I, I kind of have to. Um I always look for certain visual elements that I know are going to really work. So any any kind of strong circular structures, like one of the reasons I love Amsterdam so much is I love the arches that you get in the bridges. I love, I just find something really beautiful about those, but also it's, it's a kind of a, a visual device that I can use within my pictures. So I know that they're going to work. So I think there are certain, I think visual things I'm looking for, which in some ways is a constraint because I know certain things I'm not going to try and tackle because you, you kind of know, I suppose like anything, you know, your limitations, you know, you know what you, you're good at, you know, the things that you can kind of get away with. And you, you also, hopefully you've got the self-awareness 
to know that some some things you just you just don't want to do like for example going back to figures there are some urban sketches that are just amazing at putting figures in and and i'm just kind of like it's such admiration for them and such respect for the fact that they can they can they can do it i can do figures but a i've got to be drunk and b i can't put anything in the background so i can do figures when i've had a few drinks but they just they float they kind of stand alone uh, and it's almost like the opposite of my cityscapes they kind of stand alone and i don't put figures in inside them yeah but there's a whole there's a whole host of reasons why i don't put figures in loads of reasons Loads. Yes, I actually that that's exactly what I want to go into next. Why don't you put figures? Because I'm a person who I'm a person who loves to draw figures mm. in my urban landscapes. Yeah. And uh, while while absolutely agreeing with what you said about knowing things that you don't want to do, whether you're uncomfortable, whether you feel that you can't do them justice. Like for me, like I just mentioned, I don't draw windows. I don't like to draw windows. I'll draw one and then I'll not draw the others. Mm-hmm. I just. I don't care the fact that there are 10 windows in a row. Mm. It's just exhausting for me to draw them in mm. perspective. So I will not do it. And as a result, I even in a city like Chicago, I will draw skyscrapers, but they will be far in the background. And I will use that as an excuse to not uh, draw their details because it's just too much. Like There are so many ways to get it wrong with one stroke of my line that I just don't want to get into that. Mm-hmm. And it's it's part of the thing about maintaining a precision within your world. Mm. If I feel that there is a little thing I could do that would throw that precision out of whack, yeah. it's not worth the effort. So yeah. I would rather skip those subjects and change the subject matter I do. But then yeah. again, the beauty is that then you're thinking more deeply about the yeah. subjects you yeah. are sketching. And do you know what, Nishan? I think everyone does that. I think every single artist and urban sketcher does that from Van Gogh to Picasso right the way down to, you know, an urban sketch. We, we all have our cert- a certain way of working, don't we? You know, even some of the greatest, greatest artists that were out there, you know, they, they, they had a certain way of, of expressing themselves. And, 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 and eventually you start seeing the world through your own art. So, so for example, I, I visit a city, I start looking for things that I know I can make art out of, that I can draw, I can record, so I start looking for certain certain shapes and other things I don't look at. I, I just don't, I don't see them. And it's the same with people. You know, I know they're there. I know they're moving around, but I don't really look at them because I'm not going to put them in my picture. I mean, I talk to them and I, you know, I hopefully, you know, I'll be able to hug them again and go for a drink with them and, and you know, become really good friends. But I will not put them in the pictures. For lots of reasons. Yeah, I. so I wonder... Once you made that choice, and it is just simply a choice, there's no right or wrong mm. here because we're talking about art. Yeah. Uh, once you made that choice, what does that then mean for what your work is saying? Like, le- let's not simply say that, oh, now it doesn't tell you how many people are there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell, like, regardless of what it doesn't say, what does then that say about what mm. your work is about? Okay. The fact that it's about a city, but yeah. the people are not there or the time of day is yeah. not notable. Okay. Well, let, let, let's take let's take an, an example then of of a, a city that that you know I I've been to where I've I've done lots of kind of urban sketching. So we'll take London. London as an example, right? So I was in London last year. Um, so I was in London um, last year filming, and we went to Piccadilly Piccadilly Circus. I'm sure a lot of people will know Piccadilly Circus. It's it's got 
a statue, it's got a fountain, it's got the Eros. It's really, really busy. And we were there filming for Urban Sketch Course and it was full of people. So I didn't put the people in because the scene was not about the people. The scene was, and this is, this is the best way to explain it. The scene, what I draw is a record of me looking at something over the course of say three hours. Now in that time, it's full of people, but they don't stand still. Now Eros goes in because he's a statue and he stays in the same position for three hours. And the steps, they stay there for three hours, okay? And the buildings behind and the lampposts and the advertising board and the letterbox, they all go in because they're all there for three hours. Now the guy that comes along, you know, trying to scrounge money off us or the busker on the corner, they don't go in because they're only there for 20 minutes or 15 minutes or two minutes or the guy that goes past on his bicycle, they don't go in because they're moving, they're moving around the scene. So it's a little bit like what I'm drawing is a stage set with all the actors, but the actors have just moved off and they're just about to come on again. So if you looked at my, if you looked at my sketch, like three seconds later, it would be full of people, but they're all just about to walk in from the sides but not quite. It's like that moment in time because it's a record of me looking at it. It's what I see. So I, I only draw the stuff that kind of doesn't, doesn't really move. Because if, if, I, if I did do it, if I did draw the people, in my mind, it wouldn't make any sense because I'm drawing things that move over a period of three hours, but it's only taken them like three seconds to walk across my drawing. So why would I, why would I put them in? Because they're not frozen, they're not statues. And yet everything behind it is what was there for three hours. So it's almost like I'm outside drawing the experience of being there, but by putting figures in, I'm reverting back to what you do from a photograph. It doesn't make any sense. I, I, I can't personally reconcile it. I can't get my head round why I would put figures in. I can, I can totally respect other people doing it, but to me, and this is only a personal thing, so I apologize for all the people who put figures in, when I look at an urban sketch and there's figures in it, it looks like a photograph. It doesn't look like a record of looking at something over a period of time. Because why is the figure there? The figure shouldn't be there because the figure will have moved by the time you've drawn it. And so what should be there is the stuff that's left behind. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a valid point of view. Because uh, like, so if uh, like I've drawn crowds and I've drawn uh, people doing things in crowds. And the way I think about it is, a little different how I think about it in my head is that I think that they do not belong to any moment of time in reality in this in this format so if I drew somebody walk just sitting on the bench and somebody's walking past them they weren't actually walking past them maybe the person sitting on the bench had left by the time this person came by walking past the bench right. so they don't belong to a moment in time the people playing hockey were not playing hockey in this way when somebody else was picking up food from a food truck. Mm. So they don't belong to that same moment of time. It's, it's a world that I've brought them uh, into. Yeah. They, they occupy this space. Yeah. That's so good. this is just, it's, it's just different that's ways good. of looking, right? That so my sense. way of looking yeah. is that there is this space, which is timeless. Yeah. It's not changing. These things, these structures are all there. And in the period that I drew this drawing, this is the amount of human activity that flowed through it. That's great. So it's kind of a mix of a time lapse yeah, and like good. a blurred time lapse almost. I with like that. That's the good. With the permanent structures sort of setting the scene. But I absolutely love what you said about it being a set 
that is just about to be populated by people because I get that sense from your drawings. It feels to me like somebody's just about to come around the corner. And that's why I reference all the human elements. So that's why I put all the signs in. All the shop signs go in, all the lettering goes in, the sidewalk goes in, even the curb that you can step onto, uh, the pedestrian crossing, you know, everything that the people need is there. It's all ready for them. It's all ready. They're just, they're just not there yet. They're, they're just not there at the moment. And the other reason, there's another reason I don't, I don't do them is because I want people to relate to my scenes. I want them to imagine themselves in the scene. You know, they, they can become the subject. So I don't want some kind of anonymous person in there because it will be too much of a distraction. Right, right. That's a great point. I haven't seen any of your sketches in doors, but I feel like a cafe sketch made by you would be quite interesting. And how you would reconcile these decisions when you're in a cafe setting would be quite, there are, uh, quite there interesting. Are, there are a few. I mean, if you go on my Instagram account and scroll down to be- the beginning of last year, beginning of 2020, there's a couple of Liverpool cafe scenes that I've done where I've drawn people in the pub. But I've had to say to them, look, do you mind if I draw you? I mean, I can't just like sneak up. I'm, I'm just too too embarrassed to do that. I, I have to say, look, guys, do you mind if I draw you? And and they, they normally, you know, they're normally really pleased. So I sketch them and then I kind of frame the rest of the pub or the rest of the cafe kind of around around their heads. So they're kind of like the main the main subject and then everything kind of fits fits around it. And, and that's been that's been good fun. I've, I've enjoyed doing them, but I don't I don't really do them very often because it's it's just not my thing. I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather not put them in. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's quite. Uh, so it's interesting you say that because when I sketch people and uh, even when I'm sketching outdoors or indoors, that what you just mentioned about sketching a pe- people in a cafe is exactly the way I go about it. Right. I always think of all of these things with reference to the people that are there. So one kind of question that I ask people, and I have recently discovered that this is a very existential way of thinking, is that, uh, is a cafe still a cafe if you don't have a person drinking coffee inside it? Or is a traffic light a traffic light if somebody's not waiting at that traffic light? So this idea of does a city have meaning if there are like, so the urban environment is an artificial environment that has been created for our use. It doesn't exist in nature for just like just by itself. So do these things still have so in in my sketches I'm representing that kind of existentialist way of thinking that all of these things have meaning with reference to their use by human beings mm. and that human beings therefore empower mm. them and give them a kind of context. Yeah. It's a little existential yeah, it's a I little phenomenological. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get. I mean, I totally get that because my urban urban scenes are just full of people, but you just you just can't see them. They're full of people. I mean, so some of them, for example, are you know all those windows that you've said you don't like drawing. Well, I I put I put loads of windows in, and behind all those windows are the people, and all those buildings that I draw, they're full of people. And all those shops and all those cafes, they're just, they're full of people. You just, you just can't see them. And around the corner, just around the corner, there's somebody just about to come around the corner, but you just can't quite see them. You just have to wait a few more seconds and then they'll be there. So yeah, I, I totally get it. I, I agree. All these cityscapes need to be full of people, but you just can't see them in my picture. Yeah. Actually, your drawings are so alive that that is literally the sense I get from them. I do feel like those windows are there and I can imagine that there is somebody inside there working at a desk. And I, when I see a street, 
which is just veering off into the into the you know into the horizon i can just imagine that somebody's about to turn the corner on them so you have achieved <laughs> this invisible presence You're of people very, quite successfully very in my kind book. that's very kind of you nishan thank you so much <laughs> Speaking speaking of books I want yeah. to ask about your latest book okay. uh, which is so aptly titled Layers of Looking because yeah. that's exactly how it feels your work is created. Um so what was it like to to put this together what's the idea mm. behind this book is it meant for other urban sketchers and how how is it for you to put your thoughts together in written format um, in this way it was it was great fun to do we we did it we did it last year and i did it in conjunction with um my friend brenda murray who owns studio 56 boutique um and she she kind of published it for me um and it was it was great to do it was quite straightforward and quite easy really because obviously i've done a lot of drawings and a lot of teaching over the years and i just i just wanted to to put together a kind of showcase of of what interests me what what it is that motivates me to go to these places and and how I kind of go about do it doing it and what I'm looking for so the way we've kind of organized it is is structured it in terms of lots of different kind of themes so one theme is all about color one's about storytelling through detail one touches on perspective one touches on the use of white space um there's even a section on figures as well when I put figures in when I've been drunk So we wanted to kind of do it that way so it's more about what motivates me um and hopefully people will just kind of get an insight into you know my thought process the things that you know I'm really interested in and hopefully just you know encouraging people to get out there and just look at the world and just stop for a few minutes and pick up a pen and just and just draw it um so that that was the thinking really behind it just to present to people look this is this is my stuff it's not an instructional book it's not full of tips it's not full of techniques i mean there's, there's other artists and urban sketches that do that brilliantly it's it's not that kind of thing really it's just showcasing my my world really yeah yeah i i find that quite interesting because there is there is a bias towards these books needing to be quote unquote needing to be instructional and to be educative but i find it fascinating when urban sketchers his books are literally about them as the artist that they are and sharing what they see and how they see it and it's it's maybe it's less intimidating than for a person to pick it up because it you don't have to qualify to read this book in any sense is that correct yeah it is i mean i know a lot of friends have bought the book and they the last thing that they want to do is pick up a pen and draw but they just they're interested in places and they're interested in looking at places and understanding how 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 somebody would want to do it and if they they were, they were to do it what what they would be looking for but it's not really necessarily inspiring them to go and do it themselves but it's given you an insight into how somebody's mind works and so for example there's a, a section up in com on landscapes and cuz I, i do lots of landscapes to do lots of kind of cityscapes without the buildings but you approach it in exactly the same way and when you're out in nature you know you see lots of leaf shapes and lots of branches and twigs which repeat themselves so you're looking for a repeated pattern and it just repeats itself and one of my friends read the book and she's not a, an artist at all but she she takes the dogs for a walk in the countryside and she said it's so true that when you're out in the landscape you see the same thing over and over and over again you see all these repeated patterns and it's what's good for you it's so good for the soul because you kind of you know you're immersing yourself in something that just repeats itself so you walk through the woods 
you're seeing all these strong verticals and all these greens coming at you and all these shapes are coming at you. And that's what's good because you know in the woods, you're not going to suddenly stumble across something that you don't expect. You know what to expect. And it's the same with the landscape. You know what to expect. And that's what you're looking for. And that's got nothing to do with art. That's just to do with human perception, human experience. And that's what I've tried to do with the book, make it just relevant to what I do, what I see, what I'm interested in, and, and not try and bash somebody over the head and say, you've got to use, you know, Prussian blue mixed with burnt sienna all the time. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, that's that's such a good point. Uh, Ian, now we don't really know how the next few months are going to pan out, whether things get better or not. Uh, you've you've been able to, however, visit a lot of places in the world as a sketcher, as an instructor. Um, what are some of the places you most uh, outside of the already scheduled impending workshops? Yeah. What are some of some places in the world that you're most eager to visit as a sketcher? Okay, um, wow, well, there's there's a lot of places coming up. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm I've never been to New York, and I can't wait. So that's that's in October. Um, and my, my, my motivation for all these places is just to find, you know, different colours, different shapes, different patterns that you can you can just express different stories from. So I'm so looking forward to <clears throat> to going to to New York. Um, I'm going back to Porto again in September, which will be great fun, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, I'm off to Paris next year, which which will be super fun as well um so yeah there's, there's there's so many i mean there's there's loads and loads and loads of them and each place you go to has its own you know its own story to tell and it's, it's finding it's finding those stories you know it's just because when you when you travel you know you rock up in a city and and if you if you if you live in that city all, all all your life you take things for granted but if you if you're seeing it for the first time there's little things that jump out at you so when i was in new orleans I was fascinated by the telegraph poles because all the telegraph poles, they're all laden with so many wires and so many bits hanging down. And we don't really get them in the UK. They're all kind of quite, um, they're quite subtle and they're quite straight and they're quite small. And, but in America, they're, they're like all over the place. And they were just brilliant because they're great architectural devices to put into your pictures because they just, they break up that space. And I was drawing and um, again in New Orleans, I was drawing the, the cables going across the top of the picture and I noticed all the Mardi Gras beads sticking down that get, you know, chucked up during the during the festival. And you see them hanging down and little things like that are just wonderful to find. And that's what I'm looking forward to, just going off to these places, whether it's New Orleans, whether it's New York, whether it's Mexico or whatever, and just finding something that's, that's unusual, that's different, that you can connect with and then you can find a really cool way of putting it into your picture which hopefully inspires other people to go off and find things as well and it doesn't have to be you know it doesn't have to be the eiffel tower it can just be some mardi gras beans that are just thrown over a wire it can be something really really simple but when you find it it's magical it's so good yeah yeah I, it's this <clears throat> opportunity to celebrate something that's very commonplace that's not that's not a you know that's not a tourist attraction but still finding something so beautiful in it something captivating enough to give it so much of your time mm. to give so much of your day and so much active attention yeah 
is just it's it's a privilege that we get from from doing this activity yeah, we, we enjoy everything so much it's impossible to get bored a couple of years ago i was in the south of france doing some workshops and i was staying in a small tiny little medieval village called carons which is in the, <clears throat> the languedoc region which is <clears throat> the south of france and I did lots of sketches of the back streets and the back streets. I mean, anybody would just think, my God, they're just so ugly and so scruffy. But you just find real beauty in in things like that, in, you know, crumbling brickwork and big, thick, chunky pavements and wires hanging down and, you know, drain pipes and, and satellite dishes. And this this juxtaposition of all these very ordinary, you know, potentially ugly looking random things. But when you put them together, they can look beautiful because it's it's how you how you deal with them, um, and that's one of the things I try and I try and do with the workshops. If we're doing a series of workshops somewhere, you know, you don't always want to go for the greatest hits. You don't always want to rock up and do the major scenes. Sometimes it's the little ordinary thing that can be really quite beautiful, and it's how you you go about doing it and how you compose it, how you structure it, how you layer it. Um, that's that's what I think is is really satisfying. Just finding beauty in the ordinary. Yeah. Right, absolutely. We we have this unfortunate bias towards thinking that beautiful things are pretty things and that beauty cannot be in things that are so to say ugly things. But the it, we really like there's there's so much to gain from expanding this definition of beauty to include things that are not just conventionally pretty or neat or you know clean and or, organized. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And and it's kind of why, you know, why I think it's important to, to do it in the first place, because, you know, it's a celebration of the world in, in all its glory. And sometimes, you know, it, it is a bit shabby around the edges and sometimes it, it needs a kind of lick of paint and a bit of tidying up. But, but you know, to, to represent it as you find it and as you see it and how you think you can almost like reconstruct it, I think is, is, is just a wonderful thing to do. When I was in um, Porto for the symposium, we had a bit of time after after all the, the workshops were finished and I went off and did a few drawings myself and I found this one amazing passageway looking down towards the big bridge that went over. And on the left-hand wall, there was this graffiti. It was full of graffiti. So I just copied the graffiti and it became a really big dominant part of the picture. But I love lettering anyway. So to be able to copy somebody else's style of art and incorporate it into an urban sketch was great. And, and I did that, but it was three years ago. But that's really inspired me now. So every time, if I can put graffiti in, I'll put it in because it's a great stylization. It's a great juxtaposition between the space that you're trying to record and then this kind of flat, abstract, artistic form. And you've got the relationship, you know, between between the two. So so finding kind of quite banal, ordinary, ugly looking things can sometimes really you know help you on your on your journey yeah yeah and i i have a particular fascination for graffiti like i love how it's almost like a, a normal a, just a, a singular citizen reclaiming a part of the city yeah. to express themselves with yeah and i like there are arguments why graffiti shouldn't be there blah 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 but like some of the greatest cities in the world are packed with graffiti yeah. you find graffiti all over rome you yeah. find graffiti all over amsterdam and yeah, paris yeah, yeah. and i love that that ownership that people exert over their city in this way yeah i did a i did a scene in in, in amsterdam once and there was a bit of graffiti in the corner which i copied and it looked like 
the signature. It looked like my signature of the picture, but it wasn't. It was somebody's name that they'd written on the side of the canal, which was just great. So I loved that. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, little things like that. Those that little visual, you know, ambiguity can can sometimes be really, really fascinating to to, to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Ian, we've reached the end of the things that I thought I wanted to talk to you about. We have. I came up with a lot of other things thanks to the wonderful stuff that I've learned from listening to you just now. So uh, thank you very much for giving me your time, for telling me so many wonderful things about yourself. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. It's, it's just nice chatting about creativity and going quite deep as well sometimes. It's, <laughs> it's fun, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sneaky Art Podcast. So many wonderful ideas and Ian's thoughts have inspired me to pick up my brush and watercolors once again. I will speak more about that soon on my weekly newsletter, The Sneaky Art Post, where I discuss thoughts from this show, share my art, and chronicle my journey of self-education to become an artist. If that sounds interesting to you, you can click on the link in the show notes to check it out and to subscribe. That's all from me now. Thank you for listening. I'm truly grateful for your time and attention. And I hope to see you in the next one.